Our scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teachings he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil, and when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and those are the ones along the path, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure it for a little while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the world, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Here's what I've noticed over this, this weekend. This is typical over the last 30 years, is that people tend to be a little bit hungover after Thanksgiving. <laughs> not that they drank, okay? I'm not saying that. It's just all the turkey and the food and the pies. Anybody have really good pies this uh, I said, notice I said pies, <laughs> plural, yeah, and so it's, it's just really kind of fascinating, but uh, I, was, uh, I, I was given a, a, a paper that one of my grandsons, who's nine years old, had to fill out at, at school, and it was, I am thankful for, and it gives kind of a list of about 16 questions that's asked, let me see if I can get it up on my phone here. And uh, I, I found it interesting some of the, how he answered some of the questions. And uh, it's like, I am thankful for, answer each question, try not to use the same answer more than one time. It's like, uh, what are you thankful for that's green? What are you thankful for? And it goes through this whole list, but I liked two questions in particular. One was question number 11. What do you think your teacher is thankful for? And he said, me. I think that's the making of a narcissist. <laughs> I know you're thankful for me. And then the, uh, the second question I found really fascinating, he said, what do you think a very old person is thankful for? 
And he said, they are living. <laughs> so I'm, I guess I'm supposed to be dead by now, and uh, I'm thankful that I'm still living. Yeah, I thought it was, it was funny. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We got a great message here uh, this weekend, Hearing the Voice of God. This is part six, Hindrances to Hearing God. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter four. Those were the verses that we just read, verses one through 20. Also grab your sermon notes out. You can follow along, part of the intro here. Take a look at that intro. The heart of our problem in hearing the voice of God is the problem of the heart. It's the problem of the heart. Proverbs 4.23, it says, above all else. It's fascinating he would say that because it's, this is really, really important. Above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. It determines the course of your life. It determines how well you can hear the voice of God. So let me give you a quick summary here of uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. In this parable, the sower is God or his instruments. The seed would be his word or his voice. And the soils represent the condition of our hearts. And so Jesus uses parables because they were effective and memorable ways to convey divine truths, but only those who have spiritual eyes and ears can understand the secret of the kingdom. We see that in verse 11 of our text. Now, if a person will repent and believe in him, they will be given the privilege uh, to be able to hear what these parables are all about. That's, that's found in verse 12. But even those who have this privilege must keep their hearts from becoming hard. He, I mean, he, he comes after the disciples and says, guys, if you don't understand this, you're not going to understand what I'm talking about. You need to understand this. So there's a tendency, even for those that are, are followers of Christ, for our hearts to become hard. So it's really important. So when we talk about the heart, you need to understand what the Bible says about the heart because the Bible uses the word heart 900 times. So it's a pretty important word. And so when the Bible talks about heart, this is what you want to think of. Take a look at this uh, heart chart. You've seen this before. And so you'll notice at the very bottom, it says treasure and then it works its way up. And so if you're going to draw this, you know, on your notes, sermon notes, you're going to want to put an arrow going up from treasure to thoughts up to the feelings and actions, because that's how your heart works, actually. In fact, Matthew 6.21 says, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So what you treasure in life is going to have an impact on your thoughts, feelings, and actions. And so the tendency, you know, for instance, we're dealing with hearing the voice of God. The tendency, if you went to a friend and, they, and you said, hey, I'm having a hard time hearing his voice, teach me how to do that. Our tendency, for instance, a moralist would say, well, you need to allocate time and eliminate distractions. And, and what they would be dealing with is more of the actions or the will. They're focusing on that. And though that might be good advice, though it doesn't get to the heart, deep into the heart of, of the issue. So a moralist would say, hey, you need to read your Bible and pray more. Okay, I got that one. I'm doing all that, but I still have a hard time hearing God. So it's got to go much deeper than that. A relativist would say, well, stop thinking negative thoughts and, and you won't have negative feelings. It's probably your negative thoughts and negative feelings are blocking out the voice of God. And that, I mean, certainly that's important, but you haven't gotten deep enough in the heart. And, and by the way, this is the same that's true when it comes to life change. Oftentimes, you can even hear messages or go to churches that they would focus on 
if you're not conscientious of this, they will tend to focus on actions and feelings and thoughts. And those are all important to deal with, but until you've actually dealt with your treasure, the treasure, what do you treasure? What, what, are, what are you trusting in fundamentally? What are you, where are you placing your hope? What are you trusting in fundamentally in your life? Now, what's crazy about this is that we can say, well, I'm trusting in Christ, and at the same time, in reality, I'm not. And we'll talk about that. Our, our emotions, our thoughts and feelings and actions will betray us because it will be inconsistent with someone who's truly trusting God, finding their hope in God, and truly loving God with all their heart. And so, so the gospel response to this when someone says, hey, I need life change, I want my life to change, or I need to be able to hear God's voice more clearly. The gospel response would be the key to change is not behavioral modification. So it's not preoccupation with actions, feelings, and thoughts, or thoughts, feelings, and actions, where we typically focus on. It's not behavioral modification, but heart transformation, focusing on the loves of your heart. Focusing on the loves of your heart. What, what do you love more than anything? Hopefully it's Christ. So you focus on the loves of your heart. Why is that? Because, listen, you are what you love. You're the product of the, of the loves of your life. And you worship what you love. And, and in fact, what you love will dominate, this is why the arrow goes up, will dominate your thoughts so all you need to do is, is take a look at your, what, what do you think about in your solitude? What do you daydream about? It's going to tell you what you really, really love more than anything. So what you love will dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action. That's how our heart works. So when the Bible says, above all else, guard your heart, it's actually talking about what are you treasuring? more than anything, because it will have an impact on your thoughts, feelings, and actions. And so you, what do you, if you want to change your life, you've got to change what you're treasuring, what you're worshiping, and what's the most important thing in your life. And, and once again, you can say that Christ is, is fundamentally who you're trusting in, but then your, your thoughts and feelings and actions will betray you. They'll actually reveal to you exactly what you're truly trusting, and that's what we'll look at here. So we need to look at hindrances to hearing God, and then we'll talk about helps to hearing God. So hindrances to hearing God. From our text here, there's three. There's the stubborn heart, the shallow heart, and the strangled heart. And you'll notice be, beside each one of those, I give you one of our three enemies. You guys know what our three enemies are as Christians? Yeah, Satan, self, that is our sinful self, and then society, the values of our society. So each one of those enemies work particularly well in one of these three areas of our heart. And each of these have to do with the depth of the gospel, how far deep, how far down has the gospel gotten in our life. And so, for instance, the stubborn heart, this is really a work of Satan. If you want to see the three enemies spelled out to you, it's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And there you have uh, Satan, sinful nature, and society all together. But the stubborn heart is really can be a work of Satan. Now look at verse 15. Keep your Bibles open. You can follow along. So verse 15. And these are the ones along the path. So, so he's broadcasting the seed. These are seed that falls along the path where the word is sown 
when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So sowers typically on this day would broadcast the seed, throw it out, and that seed would be thrown everywhere and some of it would land on paths. There were paths sometimes through fields, but particularly on the outside of the fields. And this is where a lot of foot traffic would pack down the soil. So it was hard packed and the seed would land on top and then, as he said, the birds would come and take it away. And he's actually saying, well, that's the work of Satan. He takes that word away. It doesn't get down into the soil, down into the heart. Therefore, it's unproductive. Now, what would cause a stubborn heart? There's two causes to a stubborn heart. We've got them on your notes here. The first one is pride. And the second one is bitterness. So let's take pride first of all. And so, and I gave you a good cross-reference there. Listen to what it says in Psalm 36, 1 and 2. It's talking about a proud person here, or a stubborn heart. And it says, in their heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. Why is that? For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. So... Pride has no need for God because it has no need for forgiveness. Why is that? Because we flatter ourselves too much in our own eyes. Now, let me prove that to you. If you were to ask the average American if they are going to heaven when they die, how do you think they would respond? What do you think? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course I'm going to heaven. And then you were to ask, it, ask the next question, so what makes you think you're going to heaven? What would they say? Because I'm basically a good person. And why would they say that? Because they're out of touch with what the Bible teaches about them and they flatter their, themselves too much in their own eyes. So they cannot detect their sin. So they, of course they have no need for God. That's a proud person. I have no need for God. I'm basically a good person. Of course he's going to accept me. Yeah, my, my good will outweigh my bad. I know because I'm, I'm basically a good person. You flatter yourself too much in your own eyes. Therefore, you cannot detect your own sin. And the Bible says that's, that's pride. And you have a hard heart. So therefore, you can't really hear the, voice, hear the voice of God. Now, I love what pastor and theologian John Stott said. He puts it this way. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to say to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying your death that I'm dying. Nothing in history or the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size." End of quote. So when you begin to understand the cross and you realize your sinfulness, because the Bible is very clear about this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've been, our sin is treasonous to a holy, righteous, eternal God. We've committed treason against him because of our sinfulness, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. We deserve eternal separation from him. 
And then we see the price he paid. It's, it's indispensable and costly what he did on the cross. And when that gets a hold of your heart, you go, oh my goodness. I am desperately in need of a savior. When you come in touch with your, you're not flattering yourself too much, but you get come in touch with your own sinfulness. Huh? You know you need a savior and you got one in Jesus Christ. And his grace is absolutely amazing when you begin to understand that. So I can really tell where people are. If they've got too much pride in their life, they can't see that. The more pride you have, the less you can see. But the more you are in touch with the reality of who you are based on what God's word says, then the more you're, you're gonna just appreciate God's grace because you're gonna need his grace. Now, now, if you're not receiving his forgiveness, you're not gonna be able to give his forgiveness. So that's pride, and then that takes us to the next one, which is bitterness. What causes a stubborn heart is pride, but also unforgiveness, bitterness. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 12, 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Who would fail to obtain the grace of God? People that are proud. They don't need God's grace, they don't need God, they don't need forgiveness. So we fail to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness would spring up and cause trouble and therefore defile many. Have you ever been around a bitter person? Yeah, they're toxic, they're angry, they're jaded, they're unforgiving. And it's a person that doesn't understand the grace of God. They haven't received his forgiveness, therefore they cannot give forgiveness. In fact, it tells us in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, be angry but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. This is the, this is the number one way we give the devil a foothold into our life is through unforgiveness. We don't deal with the anger. We've been hurt, we've been wounded, we harbor that wound and we're angry, we're hateful and it eats away at our heart like cancer. It's bitterness. It's bitterness. Be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil a foothold. Life is hard, and over time, you can feel like you're being trampled on. Do you guys agree with me that life is hard? And oh my goodness, you can feel like you've been trampled on by your own sins and the sins that have been committed against you. And you've gotta deal with that. If you don't, your heart will become hard. You will become bitter. Brokenness can lead to bitterness when we allow the wound to be filled with the poison of unforgiveness. So I'm just diagnosing right now. As we walk through each one of this, I just want you to take a look at your own heart and see where you might be and what would probably prevent you from really hearing the voice of God. That's the first one, stubborn heart, two causes, pride and bitterness. Here's the next one, shallow heart. And the sinful nature really works hard in, in this particular one. Look at verses 16 and 17. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. So the seed, the voice of God, word of God, the gospel, sown on rocky ground. And the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. And then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. They defect from the faith. Three causes of a shallow heart. Intellectualism, it's on your notes, emotionalism, and formalism. Let's take the first one, intellectualism. You've heard me say this, this verse probably many times since the beginning of the year here. And it says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, knowledge puffs up but love builds up. 
Here's my greatest fear for our young people that run off to seminary or to college. And I've seen this time and time again. They come back puffed up like know-it-alls. They're smarter. They're the smartest person in the room. And their knowledge has puffed them up. Their knowledge has puffed them up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. It's not against knowledge. It's not saying, no, we're against knowledge. But the more you increase in your knowledge of God, I'm telling you, the more you will love him and love others. That would be the evidence that you really know God. See, you can know a lot about God and not know God. I come across people like that all the time. I mean, they quote scriptures. They know the attributes of God. And yet, typically, those people that have this, they've crammed so much information into their cranium they know a lot about God but they don't know God people like this are typically self-righteous proud defensive cynical unforgiving judgmental and have a joyless fear motivated obedience to God that's a that's a horrible existence that's very pharisaical the more you get to know God I'm telling you (laughs) believe me I've been doing this a long time I know this is what's happened in my life. I love studying. I love reading. I do a lot of studying and reading. And the more I've gotten to know God, oh my goodness, the more I love him. The more I'm head over heels in love with him. I want him more than anything. It stirs up greater appetite within me for him. And I can always tell when someone, it's not just information, it's not intellectualism, but it's really getting a hold of their life because they have this greater capacity to love God and love others. It just overflows their life. So beware of intellectualism. Also beware of emotionalism. John 4, 23 and 24, it says that we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. And so follow me here. Spirit minus truth would be emotionalism. Spirit minus truth would be emotionalism. We are not against emotions here at Desert Breeze. In fact, you guys could crank it up a little bit more, okay? I mean, when you, when you really think about what, who we're worshiping and what he's done for us, you, sh- you should be going through the ceiling. I mean, seriously, when you come together, that's why I was talking earlier because I've noticed this weekend we, we're hung over from, from Thanksgiving. I, I mean, I see it. It's just like, uh, praise God. Oh, you had too much to eat, didn't you? One too many pies. And so there, that, you know, physiologically, that can certainly affect you. There's no doubt about it. But we're not against emotions. We're against emotionalism. And emotionalism pursues feelings as an end in themselves. My wife and I went to a worship night, concert, whatever you want to call it, over at GCU a number of years ago, and it was really fascinating because it was kind of a, a good lesson in what not to do and what to do. And the gal that got up there was all about emotionalism. Come on, come on, you guys can do better than that. Whoa. She's just trying to get everybody cranked up for no good reason. Come on, run up to the front. Nobody ran up to the front. Nobody was, they weren't very excited. Everybody's like, uh, what is she talking about? I don't know. She's just trying to get us amped up for no good reason. It wasn't really based on anything. And then the next band came up, and they began to talk about the greatness and the goodness of God. And those people begin to enter in and respond to that information about that pondering of his greatness and goodness. See, that's not emotionalism. You're just responding to how great God is and who God is and what he's done for you. See, that would be healthy, normal response. 
And especially, it'd be important that your response would equal the greatness and the goodness of God. And so, so it should be, whoa, I mean, it should be up there in how you respond to God. And uh, so pondering the greatness and goodness of God, which is truth, should stir deep emotions for God's spirit. And that's the inner essence of worship. Man, I'm telling you, you think about God through those songs. That's why we, we have a time of worship in song. We're thinking about God. We're reflecting on him. Oh, my goodness, that should stir your emotions and then move you to action, begin to change your life in every way. Now, there's a subtle form of emotionalism in American church culture today that most people don't see. And it's more than just someone getting up there and beating their guitar and trying to get everybody amped up, maybe for no good reason. That would be emotionalism. It's not emotionalism if they're presenting the truth and people are responding to that truth. That's, that's good, healthy response. But there's a subtle form of emotionalism in American church today, in, in American church culture today. And, and let me explain it to you. It, it, it goes like this. We tend to value style, style of a church. That's more important to us than the biblical substance of the church. It's more about style. That we are more enamored by creativity and charismatic preachers than the content and Christ-centeredness of the message. We don't know, and I see this in American culture, we don't know the difference between entertainment and a true encounter with God. And all you have to do is ask people why they go to a particular church. And you're going to get more of a consumer response. Because I've asked people, I say, why well, do you go to that church? And I kid you not, I've had uh, people say to me, because the pastor is hilarious. And I'm like, that's why you go? Just like a comedy show to you then. I had someone last night told my wife that, that they come to Desert Breeze because I'm not hilarious. <laughs> I'm not funny at all. They're excommunicated from this church, by the way. <laughs> Actually, they didn't bother me a bit. I hope you're not coming because of that. I hope you're coming because you want to encounter Christ. That's, that's why you should be coming to a church. That's why you go to a church. I've heard people even say this. I had a guy, I talked to a guy, and I said, why are you going over there? Because the gospel's kind of shallow. Why are you going over there? It's like a rock concert. I don't think that's a good reason to go to church. That's kind of this out, outward stimuli. Does, does that help you? Do, do you really encounter Christ in that environment? I, I hope you do. I pray you do. I've heard people say, well, hey, the music's really good. It's the best music I've ever heard. Please, for the music? I've heard people say this, the service is only an hour. <laughs> Not here. We run them off right away, don't we? <laughs> they come in here and go, he almost spoke for an hour. That's crazy. I'm only used to an hour. We've actually had people leave because of that. It's like, I'm out of here. What, do they have some kind of competition to how long the pastors can go in preaching? Actually, no. We just love God's Word. We just want people to really know God's Word. And, uh, and so it's, it's just really fascinating. Oh, we go to that church because the building's like a North Scottsdale resort. I mean, those, those are crazy reasons for... Here's what we want more than anything. We want you to leave here going, wow, what a great God. 
what a great God. Not great music, great preaching, whatever. It's, he is a great God. I hope people, that when they come in here, the presence of God is palpable, that they have a sense of this overwhelming presence of God, that they would want to know him and encounter him, and that they would say, wow, these people love God and love each other. Oh, my goodness, I want to know their God. That would be a good reason. You see, children are easily bored and have to be entertained with all the bells and whistles and, and tricks and treats. We don't do any of that here, okay? <laughs> you guys, if, if you've had kids, there were times when our kids would go, we're bored. Dad, we're bored. I said, it's not my responsibility to entertain you. Come on, figure it out. Figure it out. So mature believers are easily edified and don't need any props. They're just looking for an opportunity to be a part of a biblically functioning community of believers who want to grow in their affection and esteem for Christ. See, that would be a healthy response in talking about, about our church. Not only affection and esteem for Christ, but his word. So imagine this, imagine this. I don't know if you've ever been to a conference where you got a bunch of Christians that are on fire for Christ and the place is lit up because they come in there with what? Expectation. Maybe you've gone on a retreat with a bunch of Christians and you worship the first night and, and you're blowing the roof off because you're coming in there with expectation to encounter Christ. Imagine if we all did that that we were encountering Christ in our daily devotions, but then we came together on a weekend service with this expectation like, he's here. We can encounter him. We can know him. We can experience him. I'm telling you, we'd blow the roof off this place. Even though we're hungover from Thanksgiving. <laughs> Believe me. In spite of all that, it's like, because he is more than wonderful. He's more than anything we could ever dream or imagine. To have him in our lives is absolutely amazing. And so shallow heart, three causes, intellectualism, emotionalism, and then there's formalism, Matthew 15, 8 through 9. And this is what he said about the Pharisees of his day. They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So think about this. Real Faith or real worship is ascribing ultimate worth and value to God in such a way that it engages and energizes your whole person, your mind, your emotion, and your will. That's, that's healthy faith. That's healthy worship. In fact, if you affirm the biblical doctrines of God mentally without ever experiencing in your inner being emotionally a ravishing sense of the beauty and the glory of God, it's not faith and it's not really worship. On the other hand, if you go to service and have an emotional experience, but it doesn't change you fundamentally in how you live your life, that is your character over time, if it doesn't change your character over time, it's not faith or worship. So true worship, true faith engages and energizes your mind, your emotion, will, because you're treasuring Christ. Remember at the bottom of that heart? Treasuring Christ, working upward, mind, emotion, will, it has that impact on your life. It energizes and engages your mind, emotions, and will. A shallow heart has an emotional experience with God, but it is not deeply rooted in the truth of God's word. Therefore, will fall away when hardship comes. I can tell when people have a shallow heart. Hard times come, boom, they're out. They're defecting from the faith. Now listen to me. I know this is hard hit. People who turn on God in trouble never really knew God. 
if you really know God and walk in vital union and communion with him, you're enjoying him, you're obeying him, you're serving him, you're experiencing him deep in your heart. If you know him, when hard times hit, it doesn't come between you and him and drive you away from him. It drives you closer to him. It will make you wiser and stronger and deeper in your intimacy with him. You'll find even deeper satisfaction in him because it will drive you deeper into his love. And it may take some time as you work through it and you grieve your losses. I understand that. We all go through that. But ultimately, it will drive you deeper into him. It's not just formalism. And then you've got the strangled heart. The strangled heart. Third Third problem here. This is where society works overtime with the values of our society all around us, and I think they're just getting worse. Verses 18 through 19, listen to what he says. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke, choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So three types of weeds that he's talking about here. It's on your notes. Worries, worries, riches, deceitfulness of riches, and then the pleasures of life. You have desires for the pleasures of life. Now, what, what would be the cause of this? It's right below that on your notes. Created things have become greater than the creator. That's the cause. And that's why we're so worried sometimes, because we're not really trusting God. We think God's going to get it wrong somehow. So we're worried about the future. God, I don't know, I don't know that you really got this, okay? So I'm going to help you. I'm going to worry about this, which doesn't help. And so we worry about things rather than to really trust him and make him our trust, our hope, our, our deepest treasure and greatest pleasure. And so we do that. We do that with riches. We do that with the pleasures of life. In fact, it tells us in Romans 1.25, and here's the the problem, this is the struggle with all of us. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. What's the lie? That, That you'll be satisfied, you'll be satisfied by pursuing something in creation over and above the creator. That's the lie. I'll be happier to to live my life my own way. I don't really need God. I can do it on my own. I can find satisfaction apart from him in created things over and above the creator. So we exchange exchange the the truth of God that he's he's more glorious and more satisfying than anything else. That's the truth of God for a lie and we worship and serve created things more than the creator. It tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. The love of the Father is not in them. So it kind of, it's, they're kind of mutually exclusive. If you're loving the world, it kind of puts God on the lower shelf, so to speak, second line or third or somewhere down there. It says, then the love of the Father, true love of the Father is not really in you then, the kind of love that you should have. Now, how do you know that you are loving created things more than the Creator? What would that look like? Because we can actually say, oh, no, I love God more than anything, and yet there's a way to be able to tell in our life whether we're actually loving the Creator more than created things. How about this one? Discontentment. 
That would be one of those signs that we're really loving created things more than the creator. That's where worries come in. And then, uh, and then riches, deceitfulness of riches, and the pleasures of life. That, bec that becomes more important to us. So discontentment is that we're bitter over the past, we complain about the present, and we're worried about the future. Discontentment. Now think about this. If you love God more than you love anything else, think about this. You love God more than created things, the creator more than created things. If you love God more than you love anything else, you will be content in all circumstances because you will always have what you most want, and that's God. Regardless of how things go. I know it's hard when you go through crisis, lost family members, all of this, all that. That's hard. That's hard. You have to grieve it. But ultimately, you can even find contentment in the worst case scenario because you have God. He's your ultimate love of your life. You're living for him. And so that's it's important to keep in mind. And it's absolutely crazy that anyone would trade intimacy with the creator for created things, and yet that's what we do. I mean, think about that. We're gonna pursue created things over and above the creator? That's insane. That's, you're being deceived by the riches of life. You're letting the desires for your pleasures be more important than your desire for God. And therefore, worry would certainly be an indicator of that. So those are all diagnoses. So how you feeling? How you feeling? How you doing? You doing good? Okay. You doing okay? Okay. You should be feeling really horrible right now. I'm kidding. No, you should be able to identify and go, yeah, I'm, I tend to lean more towards one or the other, or maybe all of them are working in my life right now. No wonder I'm having a hard time really hearing God's voice. So hindrance to hearing God is a hindrances to hearing God a strangled heart caused by pride and bitterness, shallow heart caused by intellectualism, emotionalism, and formalism, and then a strangled heart caused by created things becoming more important than the creator. And we've run out of time here this morning, and so we're just going to go ahead and end with prayer. You guys know me better than that, huh? You guys, oh, an hour, okay, he says an hour. Anybody, hour and a half, hour and a half? Okay. Not very many of you raised your hand. You were thinking more like two hours. Oh, two hours. I see some two hours. Go ahead and lock the doors right now. Now, we're going to finish up because we're going to talk about helps. We've got to have the cure to all of this. We're going to look at the cure to every bit of this. Here's the helps to hearing God. Look at verse 20 of our text. But those, he's talking about the seed, those that were sown on the good soil, so we want good soil hearts. The good soil are the ones who hear the word, that's mind, accept it, that's emotion, and bear fruit, that's the will. 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. That's what it produces. A.W. Tozer, you heard me quote this a few weeks back, and then you heard Kellen quote this in his message on worship. Here it is. Every man is as close to God as he wants to be. So think about that. Right now, you're as close to God as you want to be. There's no breakdown on his side of the equation. He's already made it available. He's made himself available to us. We can know the living and true God of the Bible. We can experience him in our life. But the problem is, is that it's the condition of our heart. So we've got to address the condition of our heart. So what we have to do here is we need to cultivate a humble, 
A humble heart, an authentic heart, and a smitten heart. We'll talk about each one of those. So the cure to a stubborn heart is a humble heart. That's the first one, James 4, 6. It says, God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. You want God against you? Be proud. You want God on your side? Humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin and recognize his grace that he provides for you. Now, in Luke 7, 47, it says this, whoever is forgiven much loves much. Let me bring you into the context of that. This is a story with Jesus in Luke chapter 7. Jesus invited for dinner to a Pharisee's home, and while they're eating, a known prostitute comes in, wets Jesus' feet with her tears, wipes his feet with her hair, kisses his feet, and anoints his feet with oil. Quite a scene. Quite a scene. The Pharisee said, said to himself, so, he, so it's in his mind he's saying this. He's saying, if this man were a prophet, speaking of Jesus, he wouldn't let this woman touch him. This woman is despicable. So he's a Pharisee. He's very self-righteous. Jesus reads his mind and answers him. So there's not been any conversation. He just reads this guy's mind, and then he answers him and says, Simon, wouldn't that be interesting? He read my thoughts. That's scary. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He says, Simon, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 5,000 denarii and the other 50. One denarii is a day's wages. But the contrast is here between one has 5,000, the other has 50. Neither could pay, so he canceled their debt. So he asked Simon, the Pharisee, which one will love him more? And Simon said, the one who had the larger debt. And Jesus answered, you have judged rightly. And Jesus continues on. He says, I came to your home. You gave me no water for my feet, which was part of their tradition, part of their culture. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And then he ends with this statement, whoever is forgiven much loves much. It's not that the Pharisee needed forgiveness any less than the woman, there's a bigger point here. He's, 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 he's saying something that's really important. Now, remember, a stubborn heart is the soil that has been trampled on. So think about this prostitute. This prostitute's heart would have been naturally hardened by sin and suffering, the sin and suffering of life. But Jesus' grace overwhelmed her and set her free. So this is a natural response. Here's the point that Jesus is making to Simon. If you knew who I am and what I came to do, you would have the same response to me. You'd be responding just like her. But you're self-righteous. You're holier than thou. You think you don't need me. You don't really think you need God because you're basically a good person, you think. You flatter yourself in your own eyes. You see, a humble heart realizes how little it deserves and how much it has received of God's amazing grace. That's why grace never ceases to amaze me when I understand my own sinfulness 
and what he's provided for me in his grace. Nothing can produce more heartfelt thanksgiving than rescuing, redeeming, reconciling, and restoring grace. We celebrate grace more joyfully, most joyfully, when we have grieved our sin most deeply. But if you're totally out of touch with your sinfulness, you're not going to appreciate grace like you should. In fact, that's why Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer. This would be a, a good daily prayer, Lord's Prayer. And part of that prayer, he says, forgive us of our debts. Why would he say that? I thought he already forgave us. Well, you need daily forgiveness because he's sanctifying you. And you almost need to be in touch with that you were so sinful Jesus had to die for you. And apart from the grace of God, you're a mess. You need God's grace. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So think about this. So forgiven people are forgiving people. Your inability to forgive others is based on the, the fact of you're not receiving his forgiveness, and maybe it's because you're proud and you flatter yourself too much in your own eyes. But when you understand that what he has forgiven you is so much more than what you'll ever have to forgive anybody else, which is true, because you've sinned against a holy, righteous, eternal God, and it's treasonous, and you deserve to be eternally separated from him. When you understand that, and I'm not minimizing what people have done to you, but I'm just saying how you sin against God is greater than what anybody will ever sin against you. Therefore, when you receive his forgiveness, you'll be able to offer that forgiveness. And by the way, that's what keeps your heart soft. Humble heart. This is how you keep your heart from becoming bitter. Now, I was thinking about this because we have a lot of, we have a number of first responders, police officers and firefighters and nurses and doctors. And, and I've noticed through the years when I was on, with Phoenix Fire, I noticed that guys would become jaded over time, hardened, calloused, bitter because of the hardness of life. So I started thinking, what in the world? Man, I don't want that to happen to my heart. Even when I worked construction, I, I saw a lot of bitterness out there with people, just in life in general. And I said, man, I don't want that. I want to be tough. I want to have rhinoceros skin. <laughs> tough skin because then, you know, I'm not easily offended and at the same time have a tender heart towards people. Tough but tender so I thought about first responders, doctors, nurses. I even thought of news media. We had a couple in our church that got saved here a number of years ago that worked for Channel 5 News. And this guy said, Brian Mims, he said, those are the most jaded bunch of people I've ever been around because they hear this negative news all the time. And they're suspicious, they're bitter, they're jaded. And also military people over time. And then, in fact, people that work retail. I mean, people deal with people. Oh, my goodness. After a while, you can just get jaded and harsh and angry and bitter and ee, because people are pain. I mean, I've even seen this in ministry with leaders and pastors. I've heard pastors behind the scenes talking trash about their congregations. Like, ee, dude, you're jaded. So, so how is it that we keep our hearts tender? This is important in our, in our day and time. And here's the answer, Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So if you're not receiving his forgiveness, you can't give forgiveness. Your heart's going to become just like this bitter, wrath, anger, clamor, slander. May that be all put away from you along with malice. But here's the key, here's the key. 
Verse 32, Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's good. That's beautiful. The cure, and then now the cure, so we got to cultivate a, a humble heart. The cure to a stubborn heart is a humble heart. Now, the cure to a shallow heart is an authentic heart. Psalm 145, 18. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. So be real with God and he'll be real with you. Now, imagine going into a large shopping mall that you've never been in before. What's the first thing you look for? You look for the directory. And what do you look for on the directory? The big red dot. You are here. And you'll never be able to find the store you're looking for until you find out where you are currently. Otherwise, I know I've done this before, do laps around the mall trying to find the store. And that's how a lot of times people live their lives. Because they're, they're trying to attain something, they're not sure what it is, and at the same time, they don't even know where they are. They're not fully in the dot. You gotta know that's authenticity, an authentic heart, an authentic heart or a person can find and enter their red dot, they know that they need to beware of intellectualism and emotionalism and formalism of a shallow heart. But they're, listen, they're able to identify the counterfeit gods, the pseudo-saviors that are battling for their heart's deepest loyalties and affections. Remember Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So what are those things in your heart that are battling for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections? away from Christ. They also know that their hearts are deceitfully wicked, and Jeremiah 20, or 17, 9 says that. And, and they, can say, they can say they love God with all their heart, and at the same time be using God to get what their hearts really long for. So how do you know? How do you know What's battling for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections? You ought to know that. You ought to know where that battle is. So how do you know? Well, verse 17, he says, because a shallow heart has no root system, and when tribulation and persecution arises, immediately they fall away. So to me, that's when all hell breaks loose in your life, you have a terrible emotional reaction to that. I think of emotions, inordinate emotions. Now think about this. If you are loving anything more than Christ, I mean, let's just say it's, you've taken a good thing. Oftentimes it's a good thing that's become an ultimate thing, like a marriage or your kids, how your kids are doing or how they've turned out or any number of things. And so you've taken that good thing and turned it into an ultimate thing. And in essence, you're trying to get from that what you should be getting from God. And so when that thing that has your heart's deepest loyalties and affections is being threatened, you're gonna be inordinately anxious. When the thing that you've given your deepest loyalties and affections to other than God is being blocked, you're not just gonna be angry, you're gonna become bitter. When that thing that you've given your heart's deepest loyalties and affections to that's more than God, when it is lost, you're not just gonna be sad, you're gonna be depressed and maybe even suicidal. Notice the emotional attachment to that. So your emotions, remember what I said? What your treasure is, what your treasure is has an effect on your thoughts 
emotions and will. So an authentic heart is, recognizes that. When you're off the, oh, off the scale emotionally, you're ticked off. I can't believe they said that to me. What is that saying? That what they say about you is more important than what God says about you. That's what it's saying. I lost my job. What am I going to do now? Well, it sounds like your provision is more that job than it is Christ. My friends stab me in the back. And yeah, it's painful, and yet you're not inconsolable because you have God's approval and his love for you. Inordinate emotions, like I said, idols are often good things that have become ultimate things in our life. And so idols are anyone or anything that dominates your thoughts, dominates your solitude and, and what you daydream about, stirs your deepest emotions and, and moves you, moves us to action more than God. Idols can't be removed because all we do is replace one idol with another because we're going to serve and worship something or someone. So idols can't be removed but only replaced with a superior love. Christ must become more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive to your heart than your idol. And so the cure to a strangled heart is a smitten heart. So it goes right in line. These are all connected. A smitten heart. Now, let me, let me read two verses here to you and just see if this would represent you. Would, would this describe you? This would be a normal Christian life. Psalm 84, 1 and, and 10. Um, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul longs, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. Yahweh, I am that I am, God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. What do you hear in that? He wants God more than he wants anybody else or anything else. Is that true of your heart? And then he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Think of your best vacation place. That typically, you can only spend a week or two weeks there. He's saying a thousand days in your favorite vacation spot is nothing compared to one day in his presence. Isn't that amazing? Now, when I use this idea of smitten, I get a lot of pushback from guys because they're all macho. And I had guys sit down with me and say, well, Pastor Ray, I don't relate to God quite like you. I don't really understand that whole smitten thing with you and Jesus. And so as I begin to talk to him a little bit more, I can see that their lives were smitten by cars and guns and football and politics. Why? Because it dominated their thoughts, stirred their deepest emotion, and moved them to action. He said, don't give me that, that crazy idea. Your heart is smitten by something. Everybody's heart is smitten by something. Everybody has a treasure in their life. You can't live without having something that you love with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We all do it. That's how God created us. If it's not God, it'll be a created thing. That's just the bottom line. And so it's important to be able to be aware of that. But man, when your heart wants him more than anything, I'm telling you, you'll find him. He is unbelievably satisfying and life-liberating, unlike any, anything else in creation. And that's what helps you to deal with the created things in your life. 
A smitten heart is a heart that treasures God above anything else. Treasuring God is pondering his word until that truth descends from your mind and stirs your emotions and moves you to action. I heard a story a number of years ago about a pastor who was counseling two different women. Both were married. Both had husbands that were poor fathers. Both were... uh, Both had teenage sons who were getting into trouble at school and with the law, and both were very angry at their husbands. The pastor advised them, among other things, about the problems of unresolved bitterness and the importance of forgiveness. Both women agreed and sought to forgive. However, the woman who had the worst husband and who who was the least spiritually mature was able to forgive. The other woman was not. This puzzled the pastor for months until the unforgiving woman blurted out, well, if my son goes down the drain, then my whole life will have been a failure. See the emotional response? What was going on in her heart? Her deepest loyalties and affections had been given to her son and how well her son was doing. It's fascinating, if we begin to look at our emotions, our our emotions will always betray us. She had centered her life on her son's happiness and success. That was why she couldn't forgive. See, what you have to do, and this is what we have to do, I'm gonna get real practical, we're almost finished here. You have to say to those things that have captivated your heart more than God, you are not my life, you are not the love of my life, you are not my meaning, hope, and happiness in life. Christ is my life. Christ is the love of my life. He's my meaning, hope, and happiness. That's what you have to say. And and you have to take your heart off of those things and put them on Christ. And you have to say that about your job that is being threatened. You have to say that about that promotion or job that you didn't get. You have to say that about that friend that stabbed you in the back. You have to say that about your spouse who has been in a bad mood for a long time. Notice I didn't say, say it to them. Don't say that to them. Okay, that'll make them in a worse mood. Say that about them under your breath. You're not my life. You're not the love of my life. Christ is my life, the love of my life. You have to say that about your children when they are acting out in public or about your adult kids who've gone south. You have to say that about politics. I see people so amped up over politics. I'm thinking, wow, that has captured your deepest heart's Loves and affections, your, you know, your loyalties to politics, it's not going to save the day in the long run. It's important, but it's not that important. Or you have to say that to the economy or gas and food prices or the moral trajectory of our country. It's not that we should love any of these things less, but we should know and love God more. And when our response, then our response will be filled with wisdom and love to those things, more appropriately, in order. We have to nurture that truth regularly by assessing Christ's value to us, reflecting on his beauty and glory until our hearts rest in him and taste the sweetness, the sweetness of knowing him. And this will help us to relax our grip on anything we think we can live without. It's worship. You want to change your life? Change what you worship. Change your treasure. Make him the treasure of your life. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. 
Our hearts are smitten for him because he, his heart was smitten first for us. All you got to do, all you need to do is reflect deeply on the cross. Next weekend, series finale, practicing the presence of God, Psalm 16. I'm going to share with you, this, this is really the best thing I've ever learned to cultivate intimacy with God, is learning to practice his presence every day. So we're going to talk about that. I'll be up front at the end of the service. If you are new, I'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you. If you'd like to commit your life to Christ, I'd love to help you do that this morning. If you have any questions, we'd love to try to answer those questions for you. Let's just take a moment here and let's pray. I'd like to pray Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Just say that to him. Just under your breath, just search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. So just take a moment. Which of these three hindrances to hearing God do you struggle with the most? Stubborn heart caused by pride and bitterness? Shallow heart caused by intellectualism, emotionalism, or formalism? Strangled heart. Created things are more important to you than the Creator. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May we cultivate a humble, authentic, and a smitten heart for you, Jesus, therefore giving us greater capacity to hear your voice. We pray these things in your beautiful name and everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.